Over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at Genesis chapter 2. And I kind of stated there are three sort of uh, domains that is established really firmly in this kind of zoom in on day six. And that is, first of all, God creates a place for humanity. That we need a place to belong to. That we all have a longing for home. Um, and God, in his, all of his creative splendor, created the earth and put humanity at the center of it and said, all of this is for you. And I want you to subdue, that is, to manage the world in a way that you and the world can flourish. We will find out very quickly as we jump into chapter 3, starting next week, that that, that place of sinless uh, management and co-laboring with God doesn't last very long. Um, and as sin enters in, the whole thing is kind of blown up um, but God doesn't lose his grip. In fact, he takes it all and brings about uh, the, the powerful reality of um, what one of the early church fathers referred to as, O Felix Culpa, O happy guilt. It was good that man fell because if man had not fallen, Jesus would not have come. Um, I, don't, I think it's an overstatement, but I, I, I get the sentiment. But right now, we, we have this picture of God creating a space, a place, for Mandalay, he creates a garden. He gives him a home, and he puts him in the garden. And then last week, we considered that he gives him not just a place, but he gives him something to do. He gives him work, and the importance not only of having home, but of having purpose, um, of actually being one who contributes uh, to, uh, to the world in which we have been placed. The, the question is, is our life useful? Um, is it serving not ourselves, but is it serving the common good? Is it serving our neighbor? Is it honoring God by our willingness to participate uh, in the world's brokenness and to be a healing conduit for that brokenness? That work is valuable. It is something that was actually established by God for the, before the fall. And the question is, is are we, what are we doing? Not, not does my job matter, but am I doing it to the glory of God? Um, and that God can infuse everything we do, even the things that seem mundane, um, with divine meaning. But today I want us to con consider really the ultimate goal of the place um, and the purpose, the work, is that we might actually enter into relationship, not only with God, but with others. Um, and so today's message really is around that third component, and that is family, community, uh, the creation of the other, uh, and the purpose um, of 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 all of it is that we might be a people who reflect what it means to be made in the image of a God who is a community within himself. I want to just begin with this first verse, um, and we're going to just start here, camp here, just the first part of verse 18, um, and this speaks to the need for others. Um, I've taught on this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's important to reestablish it because it's so central to what I believe God is calling Door of Hope to right in this current moment that we are experiencing as a, in our church life. And that is, and the Lord God said, it is what? Not good that man be alone. Now, this is a fascinating statement because over and over again, God has said of His creation, what? He saw what He made and it was what? Good. 
He saw what, it was made, what he had made, and it was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. And I've stated that when God says something is good, it really means two things. Uh, it means it's as God intended. It is what I intended it to be. And it's also something that I take pleasure in. So I am happy with what I've made because it's doing what it was intended to do. Now, on a very practical um, level, why would he say that it's not good that man be alone? There are actually multiple reasons for this statement, uh, but in the context of Genesis 1, uh, what we would say is that the purpose of the living beings, what was the thing that he did? He saw that it was good, and then he what? Blessed them. He blessed them and told them to what? Be fruitful. Man alone without his counterpart cannot be fruitful. He cannot, he cannot reproduce. The other is not there yet. Um, and so on a practical level, God says it's not good because it isn't yet what he intended. So it has never been, I think this puts a giant hole um, in our individualistic age. I also think it puts a major hole in our in this cultural moment in which uh, gender is seen as something that is that is um, malleable and uh, and uh, and impermanent and even something that can be um, manipulated and and I think that that as awkward as that may feel because we live in a culture where there is a tremendous amount of pressure uh, to rethink. Uh, what it means to be image bearers of God, I think that it would be, it would be actually unwise uh, to not at least acknowledge uh, that God created the living things and the purpose of His blessing on them was that they would what? Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> so, man is all alone. And I think that this verse has often been taken to mean just simply uh, it, that, you know, Everybody should be married or something, but we know that that's not the case. In fact, Jesus encouraged his disciples, if possible, that they would stay single. Paul encouraged people, followers of Jesus to stay single, and I want to be very clear that, that I do not believe that this verse speaks purely to marriage. I think it speaks on a deeper level than just the need we can't multiply without others. I think it speaks to something far deeper, and it, it's at the core of what it means to be image bearers of God. Think about this. I've, I've posed this question before, but the famous quote attributed to Augustine, um, uh, the one who has God has everything and the one who has everything without God has nothing. And I asked that question, I said, how many of you think that's true? And it was amazing how many people raised their hands and said, I think that's true. Anytime I go speak at a pastor's conference, I ask a group of pastors that question, they almost all raise their hand, this is true. I just did it when I was in Cornwall, England. And, and this guy even came up to me after, he was, he was at first I thought maybe you were a heretic. Um, because I've always believed that statement to be true. Um, but then I, I heard you out and realized what you were saying. But Adam is all alone with God. He has God all to himself. And he is in a sinless state. And God says, this isn't good. And I think that that is something that we cannot overlook. In fact, I think it's so important because one of the things that has occurred in modern Christianity, especially in the West, is the idea that the Christian life is a private affair and it's about your personal relationship with Jesus. 
And I just want you to know that you are not saved into a vacuum. And that this is one of the reasons why people are walking away from the church. Because they'll say, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. And what they're essentially saying is, I, I like Jesus, but I actually think that other Christians have nothing to offer me. Or I'm somehow better than other Christians. Or the church, you know, it's judgmental, it's blah, blah, blah. The world is judgmental. And the church is filled with sinful people, like you and I, like a, your pastor who just admitted that he drove 105 miles an hour without, and then shamelessly used the pastor card to get out of a ticket. Um, you know, we are all mixture. We are all walking contradictions, and we are all desperately in need of grace. This is why I always love Eugene Peterson's quote. If we remember that we are sinners, we won't be surprised when people sin. Um, so when people say, like, I, I love Jesus, but I, you know, you see that bumper sticker? It's, it actually comes from Gandhi. Uh, the, um, I love your Jesus, I just don't like his followers. Um, it, you know, what he's essentially saying is, uh, I have an issue with sin. Uh, and Jesus came because we can't reach him in our own effort. He came down to us. So Gandhi missed the whole point. Jesus' moral perfection was not... The reason that he came, the reason he came was because we are incapable of being morally perfect people, and he's trying to restore in us the ability to enter into right relationship, not only with him, but with others. So the goal of the Christian life has never been your personal intimacy with God. In fact, I would argue that to say that you love Jesus and to actually refuse to be in community or refuse your neighbor is actually to refuse God. I would take it as far as Martin Buber in his famous book, I Am Thou. When I look away from my, the face of my neighbor, I actually look away from God. Now, why would God say over Adam then, it is not good that man be alone when Adam has God all to himself? Is God saying, I am not enough? That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, you are not yet what I intended. In other words, you are meant for relationship and I, God, the triune God, am a community within myself. You are not that. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, what are we told? That God created man and woman in His image. He made them. In other words, the image of God is completed only with the other. Mankind was never meant to be man alone what it was meant to be is humanity there is a deep need for one another this is why i always push on the language of individual versus the language of personhood because the church fathers use the language of personhood they never use the language of individual because individual philosophically means my uniqueness apart from others where personhood means my uniqueness discovered in relationship to others that's a very different way of thinking about it. Everyone is unique, but our uniqueness is meant to be discovered through our willingness to enter into community. And I would argue, if you aren't experiencing the presence of God in your life, I would just simply begin by asking you the question, how invested are you in the community of God's people? Because we have forgotten that one of the primary ways that God speaks to us is through others. That's why I also distrust um, self-proclaimed prophets who are getting messages from God in isolation from community. 
Uh, yes, God raised up prophets that came out of nowhere in the Old Testament. Uh, but I think that the prophetic word now is meant to be manifested within the church and it is tested by the community. We're called to test the spirits. So when people come to me and they're like, they're, they don't even attend, I've had this happen over the years. Someone comes, they're not even a part of Door of Hope and they start like telling us what we should be doing and God told them this and God told them that. Um, and, you know, it's like someone coming to me and saying, God told me I'm a worship pastor. I'm like, sweet. What do you want me to do with that? Well, I think I should be your worship pastor. Uh, well, let me hear you sing. You know, it's unfortunate um, that God told you that because I feel like he would have allowed you to be able to sing, but you can't sing. So I'm going to just say, I think maybe you're wrong on what you thought God said to you. You're like, that's mean. Is it mean? It's like someone saying, I'm called to be the pastor, but then they can't preach. Like, uh, like I, we, can't, we can't just come with our own dis decisions. Our gifts... Our uniqueness is actually dictated and determined by what others see in us as we enter into service to the community. So when God says it's not good that man be alone, and this is reflection over Adam, is that the story, the, the creation isn't complete yet. And there is purposefully a gap. And I believe that the gap is there not because women are inferior to men, which is a, a, an insane way to even think about the text. Uh, no, the gap is there purposefully to make Adam feel his incompleteness without the other, like himself. Everything else is in pairs. Adam is all alone. And so I, I want you guys to see first and foremost is that this verse has so much more to do with community with the need for family with the need for others than it has specifically to do with man and woman together in marriage although that is a part of what this text is about it speaks on a much broader level that human beings are not meant to be isolated this is one of the great problems that we were confronted with uh, during the pandemic as we were shut down we weren't able to gather we were all of a sudden told that to be close to others is actually dangerous to us but we never considered the fact that it might be actually even more dangerous to be isolated. And we're still dealing with the aftermath of the amount of psychological breakdown. I just was talking with um, a dear friend whose daughter went off to college and was having a hard time. And the um, president of the college um, called him because uh, he was trying to decide if he should pull her out because she was just struggling. And uh, um, the president said to this dad, he said, listen, I've been, I've been in the education system for a long time, and there is, there is a fragility right now in young adults. They just are not as resilient at school, and I think it has to do with the years of isolation during COVID, where, they, where anxiety and panic in school has become so commonplace. We're having to learn to adapt, and I think it will go back to normal, but I think it's going to take take several years for kids to feel comfortable and safe again and engaged that this was a traumatic thing that we went through as a world um, and a lot of that trauma has to do with the isolation we experienced and now we're trying to learn what it means to live life together again because we were just told for three years that it's actually dangerous to be close to other people literally like physically dangerous to be close to others this is why you still see in portland so many people wearing masks i don't, I don't some of them i'm wondering like the, the idea of just the ability to continue to hide um, or the just fear, fear still controlling. Uh, whether, whether there's anything to back up that fear or not, it doesn't matter, it's real. Um, and it, which is help, what helps me give, 
give uh, compassion uh, for things that I don't understand. But the, the fact is this, is that that isolation proved to be deadly for what it means to be a human being, an image bearer of God. Well, let's look at this text because I want us to not only consider the need for others, but I want us to actually consider the text. And we do have in this text the creation of woman. And I want to un, like kind of unwind and um, deconstruct some really bad ideas um, around the relationship between men and women. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, it says, I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature. Just once again, I want to just point out because we're not going to get into this, but I was sharing with you last week that the naming of things is really significant. That's God inviting us into his own creative work. Um, and that is a really profound thing of him uh, naming. That's what God was doing, and now he's giving Adam the ability to participate um, in that divine work. And I think that even speaks to the church, that we get to participate in God's work. We get to be the very carriers, the hands and feet of the living God. But he says, and that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Um, that word comparable in the Hebrew is a word for equal to him, just so you know. So there was no partner that complete, there was no one to complete him, no one who was his equal. Everything that he was introduced to was something other than what he was. Um, so this is, this is uh, a, a word um, because there are other translations that, um, that make it sound like it's just a compatibility thing. Um, it's not compatibility, it's one who is equal to him, one who will bring completion to him. Um, and this speaks to that need for the other. But the other word I want you to notice, and I, I put it up here, the Hebrew word is the word ezer. You guys have heard the phrase Ebenezer, uh, but ezer um, is translated often helper. Um, and this is a word that often gets misunderstood. Uh, Adam doesn't find someone that can help him. Help him what? What, what, are we, what, what does Adam need help with? Um, is this, he doesn't have a, an appropriate servant? Is that what it's saying? Uh, is, is, what, what's it saying? Like someone that just, you know, fills in the gaps, but he's, but, you know, he's the one that's really, he's the, he's the one. He doesn't, but he's yet to find a, like, a, like a good servant person yet. That is not what helper means. This is not a weak phrase. I want to be really clear on that. The word ezer is actually a word that is used to describe God himself. And I want you to think of it almost in terms of um, there is a tremendous amount of power in this word. Um, ladies, this is a beautiful word that is used to describe the, and I believe that it's a word that can be utilized actually of of all of humanity, but in this narrative, it's specifically given to the woman uh, as she is, uh, as in her, the origin of creation, that the woman is to be the easer. And the easer is a warrior word. So this is, be, this is how it works. I'm in battle, and I'm losing terribly. The easer is the one who comes alongside and helps balance out the odds. 
There is a rescue element in this. There is a warrior element in this. There is a strength word in this. In fact, I, I think it's interesting that Psalm uh, 121, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Ezer. There's the word. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He becomes the rescuer. That's a really profound picture. Now, you know what the Greek counterpart of Ezer is? Where is there another use of the word helper in the New Testament? Anyone, anyone uh, quickly think of what that is? Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, um, what are we told? He says, Jesus said, it is good that I go to the Father, for when I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the paraclete. And what he is saying is, I'm going to send to you another just like myself. So he is also referring to himself as a helper. Um, and what did Jesus say about himself? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I think one of the things that we have issues with is that there is a servant component to the word Ezer, but there is a servant component to what it means to be a child of God. In fact, it's something that every one of us should strive to be. That is, as I said in last week's message, is our life useful? Is it helpful? Is it being poured out for the good of others? Now, the reason that this text has created so much controversy over time, and listen, we have Door of Hope, uh, we're 14 and a half years old now. Some of the most tense seasons have been battles over, over um, uh, interpretation of roles of gender and the question of, of, of you know, what is a woman's place here? What is, is there is there male dominance here? All these these questions, and the, the fact is, is like, like you're looking at a pastor who his entire life was an absolute mama's boy, uh, and I didn't even grow up with a dad, uh, and I was I'm like, I'm the kid who liked dancing and singing. Okay, I mean, like, there's nothing, uh, like, I am not a picture. I I only dress super masculine today to really bring authority to this message. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> Someone's like, oh man, uh, the New Jersey. Devils, and I'm like, what's that? They're like, put swan in your hat. I'm like, I had no idea what it meant. My son gave it to me. I just made me feel young. That's all. Nothing else. It, it, it hid my receding hairline. That's all it did. Uh, but I think that this this picture, this is the battle. And I want to just give you three kind of three realities. Um, Brett and I talked about this when we talked about the role of men and women in the church. Uh, we did, and you can go back and listen to that. But I was really helped by Donald Blush years ago. He said there are kind of three relational realities that you often find in the church. And two of those realities are, I think, counter, uh, when he argues, and I would agree with him, are counterintuitive uh, and actually fight against what the Bible actually says. And the first is, is this. It's the idea that, that um, the man uh, is, um, is, is the head in a way that the woman is meant to quietly, subserviently walk behind him and to be there to help him fulfill his dreams. This is that classic kind of patriarchal, hierarchical vision of the sexes. And the idea that Eve was not taken out of the side of Adam, but he, she must have been taken out of his back. Um, and this, I think, can be portrayed metaphorically as a march. The man is in front, leading and the woman is quietly marching behind him. 
that's not, that's, let me just tell you, that's not how Door of Hope, that is not how my family runs. Uh, I, I might occasionally quietly march behind my wife because she can be quite terrifying if she's angry because um, she's the powerhouse. No, that's not the picture. That's the wrong picture. That is not biblical. The second, which is also not biblical, is kind of that hyper-feminist movement that pushes the idea that men and women are in a competition against each other. And that is deeply problematic as well. And this can be the metaphor that would be, per that would be appropriate for that as a race that we're constantly competing against one another. And, and I would say that those tensions um, actually go all the way back to the fall, um, which we'll consider. You will, your desire will be for, for your husband and he will rule over you. That there is a tension between the sexes that is an undeniable part of human history. Um, and I think that, that sin means that our particular roles are often misused and abused from both sides. Um, and, and this creates a deep problem and we see that. The, the, the battle between the sexes the, in where it's just, I don't think that the right idea is hyper, hyper masculinity, male dominance, or the idea that women don't need men at all and, um, and they can't be a part of our conversations and we will show them that we actually are the rulers of the world, which by the way, women are surpassing men in every arena right now in Western society. More women are going to college more women are graduating, more women are getting, getting higher paid jobs. And so when you hear the statistics like women are still not getting paid as much as men, we're talking about a 1% of the population. The fact is, is that women are, women are doing, doing better than ever. Guys are floundering right now, um, which tells me that we need more than ever um, a biblical vision both for men and for women um, that actually honors the fact that it is together that we become image bearers of God. But this, this, this third reality, which I think is a biblical vision, is this. It's not a race, and it's not a march. But it's much more like a dance. I just rewatched Strictly Ballroom because I'm super masculine. Have you guys ever seen that movie? It's a really great movie. It's an Australian film around ballroom dancing, and it's really funny. Um, but in, dan in ballroom dancing, it's hard to tell who's leading. Uh, and there may be someone leading, but there's a, there's a picture, there's a unity um, in a symmetry and I think that that is a beautiful picture of what is intended it is that the man and the woman together in mutual submission to one another and come together to fulfill not the man's vision or the woman's vision but God's vision that we would be together the conduits of grace um, to a world that is hurting that needs to know that they are loved that they matter that we have the opportunity as a church community filled with men and women to together work toward that common desire to honor God. And I would say that this word, it's not, it's not, it's not a hierarchical patriarchy, it's not, it's not feminism, it's covenantal. And covenantal is a beautiful thing. It's a commitment to be the fulfillment of God's commission on earth to be image bearers and allow the Spirit to restore the image of God within us and that is brought out through our commitment to one another. So when we read this particular text, a helper comparable to him, it is the easer, the equal easer, that is the one who actually comes alongside and it is together that they can enter into the battle of existence and it is together that they can manifest the love of God. So it is a surrender to one another and it is also honoring, 
I would say when it comes to the relationship between men and women, not just in marriage, but even in friendships, is that if we are to honor the distinctions and we are to celebrate the differences and we are together to form the one image of God. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Remember I said our uniqueness comes out of our relationship with others. We need one another. And we as the church have a responsibility to tell a different story than what the world is telling. And I think that's super important for us to understand. Finally, I, I love this because what does it say? No, no, no one was there like Adam. He's all alone and God says it's not good. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he had made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That is, she is like me, a part of me, but different from me. Therefore, a man shall leave, and this is an insertion speaking to the marriage covenant. But I think once again, it speaks to the covenant of family and it even can speak to what it means to be the church therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh i want to just state we often think of the two shall become one flesh speaking specifically of sexual union between a man and woman in marriage and that is a part of it but that's actually not the primary thrust of that statement to become one flesh means to become of one accord that is we are in agreement on this common mission that we have to bring, to bring the glory of God to earth by being His hands and feet. Um, so this is a, a beautiful picture of, of the, the reality of marriage and the gift of it. And I, and I don't know about you, but I come, from a, um, I come from a family on both sides, my mom and dad, that is just plagued with divorce. So my, my um, mom is uh has been married many times she's been happily married to a man who finally found a guy who actually loved her lo has loved her and cares for her and is a true partner to her um, but she had a tendency when she was young to pick the same kind of men who were not very nice and relatively abusive on many levels uh, and so she's went through the carnage of marriage after marriage and the impacts of divorce is brutal um, and, and this is not to make anyone in this room who has gone through a divorce um, and been remarried to feel bad. Um, it's a part of, it is a part of, and a reality of the brokenness of our world. And, um, and the fact is, is that in Christ, all things are new and His mercies are new every day. And there is always the possibility of new beginning. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, but there is a reason why it says in Scripture that God hates divorce. Uh, and it doesn't say he hates divorce to make people who's had a divorce feel bad about it. It says that he hates it because he hates what it does to people. That it, because anyone who's gone through a divorce will tell you it's not a fun thing to go through. That it's a painful reality. That it's an, that it's an experience that deeply scars and takes a lot of work to work through and to get through. And it's in the ramifications, especially when kids are involved, um, goes much further than just the two people that decided to split. 
Um, God is not, is, it doesn't say he hates divorce so that you, we can be terrified of this God who's ready to smash our heads in when we, when we do something that is contrary. No, that's not the point. He, he hates anything that hurts people because he loves us, because he cares about us. And I think that the honest reality is that the divorce rate in the church is now equal to the divorce rate in the rest of the world. And that's something that, that should be noted and understood, and, we sh and it's something that should put upon our hearts to be committed to, to protecting the marriages within our community and to recognize that, that there is a reason um, why God has called us, uh, called us together, and there is a reason why um, the, this picture of marriage, the marriage covenant, this, and even this as the parameters by which sexuality is meant to be exercised, is that God actually created, remember, what is the thing that made things good, the living things good, is there is a major element of the sexual union that is meant for the purpose of, now I don't mean to sound like a Catholic priest, but it is for the purpose of recreating and populating, flourishing. That's the whole thrust of the entire creation story. Um, but there's actually something more than that, is that we have taken the things that God has created as good, and we want to utilize them and repurpose them and redefine the terms and the parameters that God has established, ignoring those parameters. So rampant sexuality um, in any form outside of marriage. We, we thought we would liberate ourselves from, from this kind of... Uh, what we viewed as some sort of archaic vision of sexuality that people should be free to be able to have sex with whoever they want whenever they want and let me ask the question has anything actually good come from that liberation no the only thing that's come from that liberation and this is coming from a man who was very promiscuous um, before i met jesus uh, and my wife and I can both attest to this reality that it is not God's best and it, and, it, and it only brings heartbreak because the joining together, that union is a sacred thing and there is a spiritual reality to it. And more than that, it is a knitting of the heart casually um, and it's the, it's the desacralizing. Uh, it's taking something that is meant to be sacred and making it not sacred, making it purely a human function. Um, but what we should be recognizing as the church is that everything we do is meant to be sacred and it has much more meaning than what the world wants to put on it. And when we actually allow the world, our life and the, what we do with our lives to be viewed through the vision of this is a sacred thing, that it, it actually creates um, a nobility and a desire to honor God and to show the world a different way. And so for me, I, th I think bringing sexuality back to this is not just merely a, a necessary function of the human body. In fact, the idea that one cannot be a satisfied, complete human being without sex is actually insane because the most human person who ever lived was who? Jesus. And did Jesus have sex? And if anyone says yes, you just go, just leave. Um, you're like, I saw the Scorsese film. <laughs> Jesus remained celibate. And he showed that real intimacy, real community, and real family was possible as a single man. In fact, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy 
may remain in you that your joy might be full. In other words, even in the midst of knowing that I'm going to die a painful death, I am a complete human being and I am one that is deeply satisfied. He isn't one who lives without people. In fact, he put himself right in the middle of human relationships. And he invited broken people into relationship with him. And they had real intimacy with him. And this shows that the, the idea that it's not good that man be alone has far more to do with what it means to be community and to be image bearers of God. But we live in such a hypersexualized society that we actually have bought into the lie that we cannot be complete people unless we are sexual people. And when I say sex, we're all sexual, but what I mean by sexual is acting upon sexual desire and urges. Um, and ignoring, ignoring the parameters and then, and then paying the consequences. And I just want to say that the beauty of this passage is to, number one, remind us that life is not good alone. Number two, that God has established parameters for what it means to be a family because He loves us and wants to protect us. And that the covenant between men and women, whether in marriage or in friendship, and all of it is that we together form the image of God, that there is beauty in the differences and we need, to, we need to hold tenaciously to those differences and we need to honor them. And then finally, I just want to say that all relationships are difficult. All relationships are difficult. I went back to a book by G.K. Chesterton called What's Wrong With The World, written literally in like 1904, I think. Um, and he has this section called The Principle of the Second Wind of Walking. And he's talking specifically about the challenges of marriage because it was the first time in, uh, in the West where divorce was becoming a very prominent part of both English and American culture. He said, the principle is this, that everything worth having, even in every pleasure, there is a point of pain or tedium that must be survived so that the pleasure may revive and endure. The joy of the battle comes after the first fear of death. The joy of reading, Virgil comes after the bore of learning him. The glow of the sea bather comes after the icy shock of the sea bath. And the success of the marriage comes after the failure of the honeymoon. <laughs> he, he goes on to say of the man and woman in marriage, he said the two must hold each other to do justice to each other. If Americans can be divorced for incompatibility of temper, I cannot conceive why they are not all divorced. I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable, for a man and woman as such are incompatible. What a profound statement, and I think that that statement can be applied to community life, that in many ways all of us are incompatible with one another, but it's our willingness because we have been born again um, and have been given the Spirit of God and born into a community that we don't get to choose who our family is. And people can be hard to love. I can be hard to love. The question is, is will we push through the tedium of, and the difficulties of relationships so that we can experience its joy? Are we willing to say, I'm not going to listen to a society that says I'm best when I'm alone. I'm going to actually, I'm going to listen to Jesus and say I need others. And I'm going to commit to being a part of the family of God. I'm going to commit to my family. I, I told my wife and, and, and my daughter just recently, I'm like, man, I'm on the last year of Hattie at home. And, and how much time have I missed um, in, in giving myself um, to my family 
in service of my own interest. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, my kid's almost gone and I could have done so much more. I could have, I could have spent more time. And I'm just, I'm calling you that, that the purpose of this text is to remind us that the purpose of your life is not to satisfy your own needs, but it is to be useful. That is a contributing part to the community and to find the joy in becoming a servant. We should all be easers, if you will. Filling in the gaps where people are lacking giving ourselves away, reflecting grace, and recognizing that time is all you have. And, and how are you spending your time? What is the legacy you're leaving behind? Will you be remembered as a person who lives sacrificially for others? Recognizing it is not good that I be alone. I, and if I'm alone, it is for the purpose of being filled up again so that I can be poured out for others again and again and again. You guys, this is the gospel. And we don't need to apologize for it to dip for the challenges that it puts forth because I would argue that it is, its path is life. And life is worth living. And it's a gift. So let us utilize the gift that God has given us of life and the gift that He has given us in each other. And let us truly be the family of God. Amen?